sorry for my voice. I am. Uh, I feel 100% better. I just was getting over a sickness this week, so my voice still sounds nasally. Eh? So I, I do not speak better English than Pastor Alfredo. I, my English has suffered actually, as I've uh, probably preached more in Spanish than in English. So I ask for some leniency and some patience because my English is also, um, you know, it, it is my first language technically. But I, uh, if you hear me speak it long enough, you'll probably notice some. Some uh, some tripping of the tongue and some weird uh, phrases that I've probably just have been too used to speaking Spanish. I think so. Take your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter five. <clears throat> Matthew chapter five will be our text today, as we've we read. It's a tremendous privilege for me to be here with you this morning, and I mean that. I don't take lightly the. Uh, the opportunity that I've been given, it's, um, it's an honor. Any time to open God's word and to preach it, it's a, it's a privilege. And it's a very important task, and I, it's, it's interesting. Preaching is it's, it's, it's dangerous. Um, you say the wrong thing, and you will uh, undergo greater judgment, um, and I, we must address God's word with due regard, with due respect and reverence, and um, we must treat Christ as he deserves to be treated with uh, fear and with reverence, awe, and we must love him. Um, I'm so thankful for each one of you today. I'm thankful for uh, this church. We've been going here to this, coming here to this church rather, for the last uh, ten years or so, and it's been a huge blessing in my life. Um, I was saved um, during my time in this church. Um, I was not saved as, at a young age as I previously had thought that I was, um, and I give glory to God for that. Um, he saved me, and it is Jesus Christ and Him alone, and it is Him we are here to speak about this morning. Um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to read, I know we read the first 12 verses, um, I'd like to reread verses 1 through 5, please just follow along with me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus speaking, and seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your goodness, Father. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness to us in Christ. Thank you for each person here present today. Lord, I pray that you would work in us, work in our hearts, work in my heart first and foremost, and I pray that you would prepare us to worship you, to hear your word. May you convict us. May your your truth confront us, Lord, and penetrate deep into our hearts and minds. May we not escape your truth. If there is anyone here this morning who does not know Christ, who is not your child, Father, I pray that you would save them, open their eyes to your truth, and save them for your glory, for your honor, and for the love of your own mercy. I pray, Lord, for 
those who are Christian this morning. Please encourage them. Challenge them. Work in their hearts and point out any unconfessed sin. Help us together to grow in our love and knowledge of Christ. Confront us, speak to us, and may this all be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We have before us the the Sermon on the Mount, Christ's first public sermon. The greatest sermon preached by the greatest preacher, uh, Jesus Christ, was highly anticipated before he uh, arrived physically to this earth. We know that Christ, unlike anyone else in history, was prophesied to come. And the prophecy was fulfilled. He did come, indeed. In the Old Testament, the, the first promise uh, of Jesus Christ comes in Genesis 3.15. We know that Genesis 3, sin enters into the world. Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, are placed in the garden. And the serpent, uh, the devil, himself comes to Eve and tempts her, telling her to eat of the forbidden fruit of which God told them not to eat. Adam and Eve had had at their charge to take care of the Garden of Eden, to to dress it, to keep it, to to keep uh, the animals and to be uh, stewards of what God had given them. They rebel against God, they eat of the forbidden fruit, and the curse of sin enters this world. We see the effects of it today. Uh, Just read the newspaper, look at the news, or get on the internet. I guess we're 2023, now we can just scroll social media, um, whatever your preferred platform is, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, and many others, just look. You don't have to look too far to see the effects of sin in our world today. But we know that uh, God addressing the serpent in that chapter in verse 15 makes a promise. Yes, the serpent will bruise the woman's seed on the heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. And that is the first promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ made in Genesis 3.15. And we know that throughout the Old Testament, Christ is prophesied. Christ is told that he will come. In Christ, we know that he exists with God the Father in eternity past. He was not created. We learned about this in uh, Sunday school this morning in Psalm chapter 2, that Christ is God's anointed, that he is the Messiah, which means the anointed one, and that Christ is the Greek rendition of Messiah, Christ is on his throne, he is set, as Psalm 2 says, and he is prepared to come again. He came once and he will come again to judge the, he will judge the dead and the living. He will judge the wicked, those who have rejected him, and he will save those who have put their trust in him. How blessed are they who put their trust in him, Psalm 2 verse 12 says. It was a blessing to be able to study Psalm 12 this morning. Uh, it is a, a tremendous text. And we see now in our text today that Jesus begins his ministry. In in chapter 1 of Matthew, we see the genealogy of Jesus. Where did he come from? Who were his, uh, his ancestors? Of what descent was Jesus? And it is so beautifully laid out in chapter 1 that we see that all throughout the Old Testament, God was assuring uh, a line. He was assuring uh, Jesus Christ would come to this earth. He, he, we see people who were be, begotten 
We see uh, that Jesus came from David's seed. God made a promise to David that he would raise up the Messiah out of his lineage, and God does so. In chapter 2 of Matthew, we see, sadly, that Herod takes interest in Jesus being born, but not to worship him as he so says, but rather to kill him. And we read of the the horror of all those two years and under being put to death at the hands of Herod after Jesus, Joseph, and Mary escape. Jesus is born. He escapes to Egypt with his family. Uh, Chapter 3 of Matthew, we read of John the Baptist, the one who was to prepare the way of the Messiah. John the Baptist had as his purpose to preach the gospel of repentance, the gospel of the Bible. He preached repentance in preparation for Jesus. He paved the way. He began his ministry so that others would look to Christ and be soon expecting Christ to come preaching the same thing. And we read about Jesus' baptism in in, in Matthew chapter 3 as well. And the the Spirit descends from heaven like a dove. And God's voice can be heard from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Giving testament to who Jesus is. He is God's Son, His only begotten Son. There is no other. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Him. In Matthew chapter 4, we read how Jesus passed the test. He is tempted. Jesus is fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. And at the, during those 40 days, he is, He's struck with hunger. And the devil comes to Him, tempting Him to eat, to turn the stones into bread. And the devil also tempts Jesus to worship him, offering Jesus some uh, temporal pleasure, some uh, superficial glory. And we know that our, our master, our king, passes the test. He does not cave. He succeeds where many of us have failed. He's passed the test. And then at the end of verse chapter four, we read how Jesus begins his public ministry. Jesus had lived about 30 years, and before he begins his public open ministry of teaching, preaching the gospel and healing and going from town to town throughout uh, Israel, teaching and preaching the gospel. And then we get to chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, his most well-known sermon, the, the sermon that is quoted the most. And how does he begin He says, he opens his mouth and he says in verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is an interesting message to be preached by the king, to be preached by the conqueror, the one who is prophesied to come. Going back to the Old Testament, what was the promise made to the Jews? What was the promise? The promise was of a Messiah. One who would come and redeem Israel. One who would come and do away with the cycle of sin. Israel, just like many of us today, uh, would, would sin against God constantly. They would sin. They would go astray from him. They would worship other gods. They would give their time and devotion to other things. They would grow tired of God. They would lose interest. And so they would go astray. And God would punish them. And this cycle continued. And it was a vicious cycle because it never seemed to stop. They were taken out of Egypt, they were saved from slavery, yet they still rebelled. 
And they suffered captivity. Their history was a long history of cyclical captivity as punishment and judgment for their sin. So the promise was made that one, a true king, a true savior, would come one day to restore Israel, to do away with the sin, to once and for all put an end to it, to save them, to deliver Israel out of captivity, a warrior, a king, someone who is to come and not just do some small task, but to accomplish a great one. Now, people weren't sure of the name. They weren't sure of when and where specifically. They, they knew in, in, in Bethlehem, yes, it was prophesied, but they were, they were, they were anticipating. They weren't entirely sure of every detail. They were, there was some mystery to it. But one thing was for sure, the Messiah was coming. He was coming. And they expected a great king. And indeed, Christ is a great king. As we learned this morning in Psalm 2, he is Lord of all. He executes power. He executes judgment. He is the king of kings. But so the king of kings arrives and he he arrives humbly. He's born in a stable in Bethlehem. And he grows up in Nazareth. And as as we read about in the book of John, uh, Nathaniel, can anything good come out of Nazareth? When he is told about Jesus. And we see Jesus' humble beginning. Yet he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he is about to preach his first public sermon. And look what he says again in verse 3 Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is interesting. Would not the King of Kings? Would not the one who was to deliver Israel preach something different? Blessed are the great. Blessed are those that stick their chest out. Blessed are those that are, make themselves great, that make a name for themselves. Blessed are those that fight for the kingdom. Blessed are those who overthrow their enemies. Surely there are those who think that this would have been more of an appropriate beginning. But no, there is no more appropriate beginning to Christ's public ministry than to preach the ultimate sermon. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Now, what is we need to deal with something right away in our text. We see the word blessed. Uh, the last in Sunday school we touched on it a little bit, and um, a few Sundays ago when I had the opportunity to teach in Sunday school, we we were in Psalm one and we dealt with the word blessed. But we see it again here, repeated in the New Testament. Blessed. What does the word blessed mean? It means simply put, it means happy. It means blessed. It means full of benefits of God's grace. It means someone who has the favor of God on them. It is a category. It is blessed. It is happy. It is those who have God's favor. Those who are truly to be counted as fortunate, as blessed. And we can't be just neutral towards this term. Meaning, we can't see the word blessed and say, oh, well, if I'm counted among the blessed... Great. If not, well, I don't, so be it. It's not that big of a deal. No, you need to desire to be counted among the blessed. You must desire to be counted among the blessed because the contrary, the other category is cursed or foolish. So this verse could read, could be read 
To the contrary, it could be cursed or foolish are those who are not poor in spirit because theirs is not the kingdom of heaven. You see that? So we can't just be neutral. Jesus Christ is describing to us a category of people who truly have God's favor upon them. A category of people who are truly blessed. A category of people who truly are God's people. What is Christ doing as he lays out these, uh, these, these attributes of people who are blessed? We've read all the way to verse 12 through these categories of the blessed. What is he doing here as he gives us this list at the start of his sermon? He's not teaching uh, a mere uh, moralism or a perfectionism uh, that is, that is un, unattainable. He's not teaching that you must, if, if you guard and keep every single thing that is written here, then you will be saved. He's not teaching us saying, do these things and you will be saved. He is teaching us that these are the marks of a true Christian. These are the fruits and the marks that will follow true conversion, true belief in Christ. In chapter 7 of, of Matthew, still the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 13, Jesus said, he gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 7, he, he, he reaches the conclusion and he draws the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount to a, to a, a monumentous end. He, he makes a call, a gospel call at the end of this sermon. You, some, many of you here today have heard many sermons. And there's usually a point in the sermon when everything climaxes. Everything is, is at its peak. And there's a call to action. Christ saves this at, in the Sermon on the Mount for the end and in chapter 7, verse 13, what we see Christ doing is he makes a call, he makes a plea to all those who are listening, and he says in chapter 7, verse 13, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. And then in verse 14, he says, Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. What is he doing? What is he saying? He's making a plea. Enter ye in at the straight gate, he says. Enter through the narrow gate. Jesus Christ is the narrow gate. It's narrow. It's not wide. It's not just anything goes. It's not there's multiple ways. It's not there's multiple doors. It's there's one way and there's one gate that leads to life and it's Jesus Christ. It's faith in Christ alone. Enter ye in at the straight gate, he says. But one thing we have to take notice of is that it's not only the gate that's narrow, the entry point is narrow, but the way is narrow. The way of life that follows the entry point is also narrow. Not permitting alternative lifestyles, not permitting sin, not permitting whatever one would want or desire. It is narrow. And you ask yourself, well, what are the marks of this narrow way? What is the narrow way like? What is it like? Well, if you read chapter 5, starting in verse 1, all the way to chapter 7, up until verse 13, you will see what the narrow way is like. Now, if you're, if, you're, if you're Christian, you will read this and you will most likely get done and feel a little discouraged, perhaps. Feel a little down. I know I have and do. How can I live this way? 
I can't live this way on my own. You can't. You can't live this way on your own. The only way to live the narrow way, the only way to put into practice what Jesus teaches is by his grace. And without his grace, you cannot. It is impossible. So let's get back to the beginning and let's get into our text. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Who are the poor in spirit? What does it mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, it quite simply put means blessed are those who realize their spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are those who realize their spiritual poverty. The fact that they have nothing in and of themselves. No merit in and of themselves. Nothing to go before God and say, God, look at me. Look who I am. Look what I've done. Look what I have. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize they have nothing without Christ. No merit. The, the, the illustration best taught is, is that of a bank account. It is spiritual bankruptcy. When you declare bankruptcy, it's, it's humiliating. It's, 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 it's humiliating. It is, it's low. It's, it's something no one wants because you admit you have nothing in your bank account. You have absolutely nothing to hang your hat on. You are drained of funds. You've mismanaged your money. You've spent it all. It's gone. You're bankrupt. You have nothing. In Romans chapter 4, when we learn of Abraham, it talks of Abraham saying, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him or counted unto him as righteousness. The idea being that when Abraham exercised faith in God, believing God at his promise, taking God at his word, God considered his faith as righteousness. It was counted unto him as righteousness. It was credited to his count as righteousness. And we say righteousness What we're talking about is God's moral perfection, God's own righteousness. So when Abraham believed God, when he exercised faith in God, the result of that faith was that the righteousness of Jesus Christ was credited to his account as if he were the righteous one. And the same happens to you when you place your faith in Christ. When you place your trust in him, Christ's righteousness, Christ's perfect obedience to God's law is credited to you as righteousness. The idea being a bank account. But what what are we dealing with in verse 3? Before coming to Christ, without Christ, you have nothing in your account. You have no righteousness of your own. You have no merit of your own. In fact, quite the contrary, your account is actually in the negative There's sin in your account. There's nothing there that could please God. Our best works, as described in the prophet Isaiah, are as filthy rags. Our own righteousness, what we would stand before God and say is our own merit, is like filthy rags before Almighty God. He is holy, holy, holy. You are sinful, sinful, sinful without Christ. You have nothing without Christ. Absolutely nothing. And we live in a world, this is contrary to what the world teaches today. What do you hear in the world? The world would say, blessed are those who think highly of themselves. Blessed are those who have made a name for themselves. Blessed are those who are experts at self-promotion. 
Those who have the greatest fan base, those who have the most followers on social media, those who have success economically, socially, those who are big, those who've made it, those who quote-unquote get it. Blessed are they, that's what the world would say, blessed are those who, are, who recognize their own potential, who think highly of themselves, who realize that there is good in themselves and that they need to just muster up all that good that is in them, believe in themselves, and they'll be what they ought to be. That's what the world teaches, is it not? That's what we hear today in our world. Everywhere we look, everywhere we turn, blessed are those who believe in themselves. This is the message of politicians, public school, Disney. This is the message of our world, entertainment by and large. Believe in yourself. You're awesome. We read something different, though, in the Word of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are poor, those who are lowly, those who realize that all they have is Christ. Without him, there is nothing. They have nothing. Blessed are them. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. It's Psalm chapter 34, Psalm 34, verse 18, we read, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Interesting. The Lord is close and saves those who are of a contrite spirit. Contrite means sad. It means broken. Those who are not high on themselves. Those who realize their need for him. And indeed, this is what prevents people from coming to Christ. It amazes me. I, I, I have dealings with people, whether it's at my work or in, even in my own family. I see this in, in extended family and in, in my friend circle. There's so many people who do not know their need for Christ. They think, yeah, he's a nice idea. I can, I can nod my head at a few truths. But to realize that without him I have nothing? Oh, no. Oh, no. I have something. I just need Christ as, Christ as an accessory in my life. I need him as an add-on to my life. How many people think this way? Oh, I, my life is good. It's pretty good. I just need a little Jesus. Now, I praise God for the fact that, yes, many in my family are saved and Christian, and I praise God for that. Their influence has been extremely, um, very, it's been a blessing to have. Godly parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles and cousins. Yet at the same time, there are those in my family not saved. Who would live their life as though Christ were just an option. Who would live their life as though he were just, just something to be added on. Is he an accessory or is he the very center of your life? Meaning, do you realize your need for him? Are you broken? Are you contrite because to those who are contrite and broken as we read in verse 18 of psalm 34 the lord is nigh unto them those are the ones god draws near to those are the ones that god accompanies brokenness let's go back to our text in matthew chapter 5 blessed are the poor in spirit and what does the latter half of that verse say? We read two things. We read in each verse. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who does the kingdom of heaven belong to? Who will inherit the kingdom of heaven? Those who believe in themselves or those who have realized that they have nothing apart from Jesus Christ and that they need him. They are the ones who will inherit the kingdom. That is the promise. And if it's promised in God's word, it is a reality. And we need to believe it. Verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. This Again, we, we see Christ, he continues. If, if, it, if it weren't perhaps unexpected that Christ say, say, blessed are the poor in spirit, well, for sure, blessed are those that mourn? Is this not something that would have surprised many who heard Christ begin his sermon on the mount? What? Blessed are those that cry, that are sad, that are broken? Yes, blessed are they. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. What does it mean to mourn? Well, it means to cry. It means to lament. But what are they lamenting? Surely not every sort of lamentation and crying is, is appropriate. What, is, what, what type of crying is Christ talking about here? What type? What is he talking about when he says, blessed are they that mourn? The world would say, no, actually, blessed are they that laugh. Blessed are they that don't take anything seriously. Blessed are they that, that are able to joke and do whatever they want. It's not really sociably acceptable to be a crier, is it? To be a mourner. When people cry, it's often, okay, we'll give them their time, but get over it already. Get over it. What does he say? What does he mean, rather? Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. What is it that a Christian mourns? What is it that a person mourns when they first come to Jesus Christ? They mourn their sin. It is mourning for their sin. We don't have time to go there, but in Isaiah 61, we read the promise, Isaiah preaching the gospel, Isaiah the prophet preaching of Christ's coming, that he would wipe away the tears, he would comfort those who are troubled, those in Israel troubled by sin, realizing we sin, we sin against God. It's a cyclical process where we sin. Oh, who will free us from this sin? The promise of the Messiah. What does Paul say in Romans 7 at the end? When he, when he details his battle with sin. Paul is a believer. The Apostle Paul struggling with sin in his own life. is Oh, who would free me from this, this body of sin? And then he says, I give thanks to my Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the comfort we find in Isaiah 61. But also, what I'd like you to notice is turn with me, well, turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. We're going to look at a few texts here to illustrate this. Revelation 7. This is one of my favorite texts in all the Bible. And I know I've said that multiple times now, and I've said that in Sunday school, and I mean every time I say that, but this for sure is one of my favorite texts. Romans, I'm sorry, Revelation 7, verse 9 to 17. The apostle John banished on the island of Patmos, receiving revelation, direct revelation, a vision from God of future events of heaven itself he receives a vision and he describes in the best way that he can what it will be like but even then it is as if we are looking through 
a blurry mirror. We don't, we, we haven't experienced it yet. Yet the Apostle John with great detail describes to us what it will be like. And in chapter 7, we read of, of a group of, of individuals found in heaven. Verse 9, John says, After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb, Christ is the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in this temple, in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sunlight on them nor any heat. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. This is the promise that one day every tear will be wiped away. You Christian, you've mourned over your sin. And if you're a Christian, you've, and, and you say, well, I, I don't remember specifically shedding tears per se, or I don't remember actually bawling my eyes out. If you are a Christian, you were saddened by your sin to some degree or the other. You cannot pass through the narrow gate without humbling yourself. And the result of humbling yourself, the result of being poor in spirit is a mourning, a sense of lamentation for sin, a sense of groaning. It is a groan of agony over sin. It is a, it is a disgust for sin. Oh, this sin, who will free me from it? I sin against God. I do the things I should not do. Those things I should do, I do not do them. This is a reality in every Christian's life. Now, if you're a Christian, you are not dominated by sin. Sin has no dominion over you. You are a new creature. Yet the residue of the sinful flesh in you would produce all sorts of lust and temptation. And there is an ongoing battle with it. If you're not battling with sin, there's a problem. And it's probably a sign that you are not a Christian if there's zero battle against sin in your life, and if there never has been any battle of, with sin in your life. Indifference to sin, that is a scary thing. It's a dangerous sign. But the Christian who struggles with sin and realizes their sin and hates their sin when they see it, what's the comfort? Those who mourn over their sin, they shall be comforted. Verse 17 of, chap of Revelation 7 God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. This is the comfort. One day, it'll be over. 
You will sin no more. You will be glorified. You will be with Christ in heaven. And indeed, the attraction of heaven is not just the streets of gold and the mansions. It is the presence of God himself. You will finally be with Christ. Is that not, is that not enough? Do you need streets of gold and mansions to keep you thinking about heaven? Is not the presence of Christ alone enough? Let's go back to our text. Actually, instead of going there, turn with me to Luke chapter 18. This is yet another text that we're going to see. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus giving us a parable. We know that parables are illustrations. They're stories that Jesus used to clearly teach a very specific point. And Relating to our text in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who are, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. Jesus gives a perfect illustration of what it means to have this attitude, what it means to have poverty of spirit and mourning a reality in your life. This is what it means. This is an illustration. Luke 18, verse 9. And he spake this parable unto, uh, this parable, unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others, meaning the religious hypocrites who thought that in and of themselves, of their own merit, of their own nature, they were good enough. They were righteous enough. And they boasted in that. To those people, Christ teaches, two men went up into the temple to pray. The one, a Pharisee, And the other, a publican, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican, I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the latter, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Is this not the truth? Those who exalt themselves will be will not inherit the kingdom. They will not be comforted. They have no hope. Their hope is in themselves. And when you place your hope in yourself, you will fail. You will fall short for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Does that not ring true for you? Do you not realize that? That in and of yourself, you can do nothing without Christ. You will fall short. You have fallen short. There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, 10. Without Christ, there is nothing. But we look at this parable and we see two men, a Pharisee who is, in in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the religious sect of the Jews, the highly elite, the the religious hypocrites, those who were marked by hypocrisy, those who were marked by just having an external religion, a superficial obedience to God, but inside, truly in their hearts, who they really were, were hypocrites. They didn't love God, truly. They loved themselves. But a publican, a tax collector is the other man, somebody who surely was despised by many. The publicans would often take more than what they were allotted. They were greedy. They were known for greed. 
So on the outside, who's the better person? The religious man or the, ta- the greedy tax collector? Well, in hu- on human standards, we would say the religious man. But Christ looks at the heart. And the heart of the Pharisee is reflected in his prayer when he says, God, I give thanks to thee because I'm not like other men and like this publican here. I'm not like him. I tithe. I give. I do this. I do that. I'm religious. I go to church. I pray. I fast. Look at me. Self-promotion. Haughtiness. Arrogance. That is the spirit that God despises. Yet the publican, quite contrary, we see the reality of Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Blessed are they that mourn. We see this to be a reality in the life of the publican. At least in this moment when he prays, he beats his chest. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Meaning, I need your mercy. I have no other hope than your mercy. If you don't have mercy on me, I'm going to die. Because I have nothing to offer you. I have sinned against you. I need your mercy. I am a sinner. And what does Jesus say? of these two men. The publican, the one who beat his chest and didn't even think he was worthy to look up to God, is the one who left there justified, at peace with God, saved, reconciled unto God. And the religious man who continued his prayer, lifting up himself, well, he was at a loss. He continued talking about himself. He continued self-promoting. And and who knows when it ever ended. After all, those who talk about themselves, when do they ever stop talking about themselves? I'm so great. I do this. I have this. I am this. It's nauseating. Uh, On the surface, very lightheartedly it's nauseating, but spiritually it's very severe. It's horrible. It's a telltale sign of what is really in their heart. It's sad. They need Christ. So as we go back to our text in Matthew chapter 5, we get to verse, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, and we're still in verse 4. What is the promise? They will be comforted. The morning receives comfort. Comfort from Christ. And then as we continue in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Who are the meek? Who are the meek? This word, it doesn't mean weak. I remember growing up, I thought it meant weak. It means, it's a, it's a self-control. It's a humility. The, probably the best synonym would be Humility. It is a controlled, reverent humility. It does not mean weakness. It is strength under control. Blessed are those who are meek. They they know how to control. They have self-control. They know when to speak. They know when not to speak. They're not intemperate. They're not, they don't have outbursts of anger. They don't, they don't have this, this, this desire to have the last word, to, to puff their chest and to get out there and to, to fight, to pick fights. 
It doesn't mean that we are to be passive. It does not mean that Christ is uh, being a, pr- a promoter of passivity or weakness or being just, okay, laissez-faire, let it go. It doesn't matter. I'll, I'll be neutral to sin. No, that's not what it makes, means either. It is strength. It is righteousness. It is, uh, it is not neutrality to sin, but rather it is a controlled, reverent humility that understands God's will, that understands what God desires. Blessed are the meek, the humble, because what is the promise? For they shall inherit the earth. Look for a minute with me at Psalm 37. Psalm chapter 37. Verses 10 through 11. Psalm 37 is interesting. It's a psalm of David. um, But we see the, the instruction in Psalm 37 is not to fret, not to worry about evildoers, not to worry about those who are who we see in this world prospering, but who hate God. Why is it that so many people who hate God and reject him, they seem to be doing just fine? They're not sick. They're not have, they don't have financial struggles like many of us do. They, they seem to be wealthy. They don't see their need for God. They don't, they're not poor in spirit. They have it all. They're self-promoting. They have wealth. They have everything you could really want. And they don't really seem to have struggle at all. And they, but they don't love God. They don't even really bother. And it's not necessarily that they, some hate God. Others just don't even care. And they don't worship him like he's due. But why they? Why are they the ones that don't really struggle, it seems? And this is, the, this is kind of the plight of the psalmist in Psalm 37. But he says something that parallels our text in Matthew 5 in Psalm 37, 10 through 11. He says, For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Who are the ones that inherit the earth? Who are the ones who inhabit the earth For all eternity, who live eternally, who are the ones to whom the earth is given? The meek, the humble, those who have aligned themselves with God, those who have submitted to God, to submitted to Christ in humility. It is the meek that shall inherit the earth, not the proud, not the arrogant. There is no room for pride in God's kingdom. There is no room for pride in God's kingdom. What do we read in another part of the scriptures? We read that God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. There is is a rejection of the proud. Why? Because there is zero place for boasting in yourself with Christ. Why? Well, if Christ is to be your savior, he does all the work. He gets all the glory for your salvation, not you. You don't contribute anything to your salvation. All you contribute to your salvation is your sin. Now, I'm not saying that the Christian life is not to be lived out diligently. There are commands to be kept. There is an effort. There is a fight that is to be put forth in the Christian life. And it is very real. You must not be passive. You can't just sit there and let God. That does not exist. That's not true. 
you fight as a Christian, you battle. There is effort to be put forth on the Christian's part. But to save yourself, to enter the straight gate, there is no, there's no contribution that you make. You only contribute your sin, your evil, your rejection of God. And by faith, and faith alone, you enter into God's kingdom, believing in Jesus Christ. Let's look again at Psalm 37. <clears throat> the psalmist saying, yet a little while, meaning a little while longer. And the wicked, those who despise God, those who reject him, shall not be. Meaning, they're having success for a time. Yes, they seem to have some prosperity. Yes, they seem to be doing well. In fact, they love it here. This is as good as it's going to get here on this earth. And if you are not a Christian here today, this is your reality. This is the, good, the best it's going to get. You're living for this life. You're living for yourself. Yet a little while longer, and if you're not a Christian, and if you don't turn to Christ, it says, you shall not be, meaning you will not exist you will not last. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place and it shall not be. What he, what he means is you take a look at the wicked person, the one who rejects God, the one who lives without God as if God didn't exist. And you, you, if you look long enough, pretty soon they wither away. In Psalm 73, a very similar psalm to Psalm 37, the, the psalmist Asaph says, I, I, he, he describes how he was tempted to be jealous, to be envious of the wicked. But in, in Psalm 73, he says, it was a hard thing for me to understand, and I'm paraphrasing, but it was a hard thing for me to understand how the wicked prosper, and I suffer as a righteous man until I went into God's sanctuary and understood their end. And this is what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 37, yet a little while and they won't be there. The wicked will not prosper in the end. They will not be victorious in the end. They will not inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Who wins in the end? Christ wins. And who inherits with Christ? It is the meek. It is those who have aligned themselves with Christ. As we read in, in, in Sunday school in Psalm chapter 2, it is those who kiss the Son. It is those who receive His mercy, believing in Him, just as a merciful king extends his hand with royal ring, that the subject may kiss his royal ring and declare allegiance to Him. So Christ so mercifully extends His hand of mercy to those who would repent of their sins, to those who realize that they have nothing without him to those who realize that they have sinned against him and mourn because of that sin and as a result they are humbled by it and they kiss him and they believe those are the ones who will inherit the earth not the proud not those who make a name for themselves and live for themselves and live for this world those whose portion is this life those whose life is all about the here and now those who are living for the here and now. Not them, but the poor in spirit, but the ones who mourn, but the ones who are meek. And in closing, 
How do we apply this text to our life? Well, application is always twofold in that there are two types of people here today present. There are those who are Christian, and there are those who are not. There are those who have aligned themselves with Christ and faith and faith alone. Not by just not by Christ plus religion, not by Christ, not, not by Christ plus their own good works and their own do-gooding, but Christ alone. Those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. Those who have believed in Christ and who have him as their only hope. Christian. There are many Christians today here present, and I thank God for that. But I would be lying if I said that there were not unbelievers present also. There are two types of people present here today. I believe that. So application is twofold. There's application for the believer, and there's application for you who are not a believer. For you who have not entered the straight gate, who have not sacrificed your pride. You still hang on to it, perhaps. You're still living for this life. You still think there's some good to be to be found in this life, something that's somehow more valuable than Christ. You haven't realized that you yourself do not have the treasure, that the only treasure is Christ, as, as uh, Jesus says in Matthew 13, 44 and 45, that Christ alone is the treasure. There is no other treasure. Newsflash, it is only Christ. This world has nothing else to offer you. Amen. Only Jesus Christ is the true treasure. If you are not a Christian, you need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to repent of your sin. You need to put your trust in Christ. And if this is hard to understand, that's, that's, that's fine. I understand that you might have questions, and that is perfectly fine. Simply put, it means to trust Christ. Just as a child trusts his father, knowing that Christ is your only hope, because only Christ could offer God a sacrifice worthy of God's acceptance. Only Christ could die for your sin. Only Christ can save you. And when you trust him and him alone, he promises to save you. And you will live a new reality. Repent. Believe in Christ. Enter the straight gate. Enter the narrow gate. The word straight, it means narrow. It means skinny. There's not more than one way. It's only one way. The second fold of the application is for the believer. You believer, are these things a reality in your life? In which one of these areas are you lacking? In which one of these areas have you begun to, 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 to wane, to 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 to, to to lose your balance? Are you humble? Or have you begun to lift yourself up? Do you mourn over your sin? Do you truly hate your sin for what it is? Do you confess it? Or are there sins in your life right now that you're tolerating? That you're turning a blind eye to? That you're not giving due attention 
Because if you did, you would mourn, you would see their sinfulness and you would be sorry and you would repent. Are you looking unto Christ? Are these a reality in your life? And notice this in closing. These are all in order. It starts, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn. It starts with poverty of spirit. That is the get-go. You enter the kingdom of heaven when you are poor in spirit and you realize your need for Christ and you respond accordingly. You put your trust in him. Then as a consequence, as a result, you are sorrowful about your sin. You feel sorry about your sin. You, You realize what it is and you hate it and you cry over it. You mourn over your sin. And then that gives way to a humble attitude which then gives way to a hunger and a thirst and a desire for righteousness, for that which God loves and a hatred for that which God hates. And that in turn gives way to a merciful disposition. Being merciful to others because you've received mercy. And then it says, blessed are the peacemakers, those who bring the news of peace, those who share the good news that men can be made at peace with God. And then, lastly, all of these things, is, if these things are in your life, they will lead to being persecuted for righteousness' sake. They persecuted Christ, they will persecute you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. And let's pray as we close. Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for Christ. We thank you for your message, Father, to us. Oh, may we be poor in spirit, Father. May we mourn over our sin because we do the things we ought not to do, and those things we ought to do, we do not do them. May we stay in your word, and may your word mold us and make us, and may we grow in love for you, Father. And those who are here present who have not entered the narrow gate, who have not believed in Christ and who continue to reject, them, reject him and live for themselves, may they be converted. May you open their eyes, may they see your truth and may they, may they decide to follow Christ. May they see him as their only hope. Oh God, may this be the reality today. May this be the reality today in the hearts and minds of those present and those who are Christian. May they take consolation and be challenged. May we serve you, Father, more and love you more. Thank you for your word and for Christ. Amen.